morning, guys. Uh, we're back at it again this week, jumping back into where we left off. We'll be back in Second Corinthians today, uh, chapter 7, uh, going through a series that we've called A Cross-Shaped Life. So uh, we're going to spend some time this morning working through the text, uh, digging into it a little bit deeper, but we'd love to have you connect with us. Uh, church, for us, we gather on Sunday nights, and so well, we don't want you to just check this out and say, hey, I've done church. We want you to be a part of it with us and, and connect with us. So if you'd like to do that, hit us up on social media. Uh, we can give you the details, location, all that kind of thing. We're in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, so if you're close to there, we'd love to have you. Just uh, hit us up and uh, we'll get you connected. So, uh, But we're going to uh, work our way through this. So uh, for this series, uh, Dave and I have spent some time uh, looking at kind of a theme verse for what this series is. We've actually settled on a passage from 1 Corinthians, which is not the book we're going through. Uh, but the passage from 1 Corinthians, which is kind of a part of this series of letters, is chapter 2, verse 2. And Paul says this, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now this, this verse really uh, is um, significant all throughout uh, his letters uh, to the Corinthians. But I think particularly this week I want us to, to have this in the back of our mind and think about this as we consider this relationship. If Paul had entered into this relationship uh, with the Corinthians from any other position, from any other perspective, uh, from any other motive, I think at this point we would see uh, this relationship kind of derail. Uh, it would have come off the rails if Paul was trying to accomplish anything else. And so, so this particular verse uh, has kind of been the theme as we worked our way all the way through it. And, and hopefully today we're going to really be able to, to capture why that is and see why that is. So I want to pause as we're even getting started now, and I want you to think about this. Uh, we haven't gotten to the sermon yet, but I want to ask you this question, and, and we're going to try to come back around to this at the end. I want you to consider your own relationships, past, present, or what the future of those relationships might be, and how would those relationships be different if this was the only guiding principle to that relationship, that you decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified? How would that affect those relationships? So we're going we're gonna to come back around and try to maybe answer that or give you some things to think about as you answer that. But uh, we're going to anchor ourselves today in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Now the whole text is uh, verses 2 through 16. It's almost the whole chapter. Uh, but we're going to anchor ourselves there in verse 9. Now let me read that to you uh, quickly. Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, you know what it's like to walk up to two friends that are having a conversation, and, and they've been in this conversation. You're coming in late, uh, and as they're speaking, you're trying to put things together. And maybe they're discussing a, a specific shared experience that you weren't a part of. And so as they do, they're 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 recounting the story they're talking about different moments and they'll bring up this circumstance and maybe laugh about that or maybe cry about that or whatever it is and then they'll continue on speaking and then there'll be another time hey remember when that happened um, and and as you're kind of sitting on the side you're picking up bits and pieces and it may not all be in order and you're trying to put this together um, or think of a movie uh, you've seen movies where uh, there will be an opening scene, and you'll just get a brief moment of that opening scene. Uh, and then, then the, the story of the characters begins to unfold and play out. And interspersed throughout that, it'll take you back to moments that kind of help build you up 
to that scene or that moment in time. And then at the end, you kind of get a, a full picture of what's happening. Uh, I think here in 2 Corinthians, we see that happening uh, really through the first six chapters. Uh, Paul mentions something to the Corinthians. Remember, he's, this is a, a letter. Uh, Paul, it's the, we only have one side of this letter. We don't have correspondence from the Corinthians. Uh, there's likely other letters that Paul has written. Uh, and so we're, we're getting bits and pieces. And Paul will mention something uh, that would have made sense to the person he's talking to. They would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. Uh, and we're kind of coming into this, uh, seeing it from a different perspective. And we kind of got to piece it together. So Paul will mention something and then he'll speak on it. He'll, he'll share some truth about it. He'll, he'll show how Jesus fits into this scenario. And then he'll continue talking and tell part of the story. Uh, and then he'll share some more. He'll teach on that some more. He'll, he'll explain how the cross fits into that. And so he does this kind of for six chapters. And then here in chapter seven, it, he kind of ties it all together. But even in this section that we're looking at, 2 through 16, he gives us parts of the story, says something else, gives us another part of the story, and they don't all fit chronologically. So here's what I want to do. We've anchored ourselves in verse 9, but I want to recount the story for you. And then we're going to come back to it and see how that really fits in, how it plays. So, so it would go something like this. Paul lands in Corinth. He's come there to make disciples. He begins making disciples. He discovers that there are already people in the city that the Lord has. Uh, and as he's uh, connecting with these, he begins to gather them. These disciples begin meeting as the church. They become the church. The church at Corinth is formed. And so he continues teaching and, and loving on them and living life with them and working with them and experiencing the city with them and the, the ups and downs and all those things. And he's there for about a year and a half. Uh, and then Paul continues on his journeys, on his missionary journeys, taking the gospel and making disciples in other cities and regions uh, around the world. But Paul remains close to these people. This is not just a, a project to Paul. This became family to Paul. They were uh, closely connected, uh, very much a sense that Paul had a responsibility to these men and women, to these brothers and sisters that he loved deeply. And so he gets news that uh, there's something happening within the church. There's some conflict. There's some sin of some kind. And so Paul hearing this, it, it, it bothers him, and he decides that he needs to write a letter to his friends, and he needs to uh, point these things out. He needs to bring it to their attention and really call them on some of this. Now, this is one of those where it's probably another letter that's uh, often referred to as the severe letter. Paul even refers to a letter that we think would probably be this, that he calls a letter that was written with many tears, a tearful letter. And so uh, Paul's dealing with some difficult challenges in this letter, and he's, he's not letting it go un, unnoticed or just act like they're not happening. And so Paul writes this letter, and he sends uh, one of his disciples, Titus, to Corinth, likely Titus delivering the letter. Uh, and he, he sends him there with it. And before Titus goes, Paul tells Titus all about the church. He says he boasts on the church. He brags on them. He he. We don't know what he says, but likely he's telling them of the, the way that he saw the Lord work in their lives, the transformation that took place, the love that he experienced and was expressed within the church. He's, he's, he's telling Titus all these good things about these people that he loves dearly. At the same time, Titus is going to a place where he probably recognizes is not an ideal circumstance. Uh, there's conflict. He, he's aware of that. He's uh, coming there and, and going to be kind of now in the middle of it. And so he's probably a little uncertain about how this is going to play out. But Paul has, has told him some great things. So Paul sends him on his way. 
Titus travels to Corinth. Uh, it's not like he took a plane, called an Uber. Um, it's a long journey. And so Paul sends Titus and waits for the response. Now, he's waiting a long time. Uh, some of you are probably like this. When you send a text message or an email to somebody, like you're waiting to see those three little dots. Like when you send that message, you want an immediate response. And if you don't get it, if it takes too long, you begin to wonder, well, did I say the right thing? Was that wrong? Did I offend them? Did I hurt somebody's feelings? Or do they not like me? Do they not want to be a part of this? What's happened? What's happening with our relationships? Some of you probably have some real anxiety over that with messages. Well, imagine Paul in this scenario writing a, a personal handwritten letter, sends it off, and it's going to be weeks or months before he gets a response. And so Paul is concerned about what the response of the Corinthian church would be. Uh, he talks about it, it weighing heavily on him, about about being concerned if he said the right thing. Did he say it too harshly? Or, or he, was, he was worried about how they would take it. Uh, and so in time, uh, as they're dealing with this, this kind of an external conflict, there was issues that they were struggling with, there was internal conflict or, uh, that they're, they're working through in their own life. But Paul says, but God, and those are always good words to read in the New Testament, but God did something that only God could do. And he returns Titus and brings a great deal of comfort to Paul and those that he's traveling with. And so Titus returns, and he returns with a message, the message that Paul's been waiting on and uh, unsure of what that would be. But Titus assures him and reassures him that the Corinthians responded exactly how they should have responded. There was conflict. There was sin. Paul writes this letter to address it. Titus comes back with this message that, hey, Paul, they, they are longing to see you. They still have zeal for you, he says. And, and, and they had sorrow over the things that had happened within the church. They were, they were grieved by this. It, it brought about some pain and some hurt as, as they see the error of their ways of this. But Paul says it brought him great joy, great comfort, because this grief, this pain brought them to a place of repentance. And so he rejoices. He's, he's overflowing with joy, he says. Think of uh, a river when it's rained too much and the water begins to rise beyond the boundaries of the bank and it's, it's spilling out everywhere else. Or if you have kids and a, a child fills a cup, uh, uh, whatever uh, drink they like, juice or milk or water, and, and they overflow it, it moves beyond the boundaries of the cup. It's flowing out into the, the counter or to the floor and it's a mess. But but Paul is describing this as joy, this joy that is within him because of the news that he's heard from Titus about his friends in Corinth. He's overflowing with joy. It's spilling out of him. So it brings him great comfort, brings Titus great comfort. His teacher, Paul, has, has told him these great things about Corinth, but he's going into a, a situation, a scenario, a circumstance where it's, it's not ideal. But when he gets there, he finds that these people were exactly how Paul described them. That, that they're sorry for the things that had happened. And not only are they remorseful for them, but it, it's caused them to, to have a change in attitude, a, a change in their action, and, and they're longing to see Paul. So, so Titus gets there, and, and these people are exactly as, as Paul had described. And so Titus is encouraged, brings him comfort. He brings the news to Paul, and it brings him comfort, and he's encouraged. So that's, that's kind of the overview, the big picture of what's happening just in this section and even through the first six chapters. So let's read verse 9 one more time. And put this in the context of what has been unfolding. 
Paul says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul's rejoicing. He's overflowing with joy, not because the hurt that the Corinthians experienced, but because of what it produced. That pain, that sorrow, the fruit of their grief was repentance. Now, to repent, many of you will know this, but maybe not. To repent literally means to turn, right? To to be involved uh, in an activity, to be going a direction and to turn from that direction and go the opposite direction. To be involved in an activity uh, and and recognize that you need to not be involved in that activity and to turn and go the opposite way to, to pursue this activity. Uh, even last week, a, a similar sentiment was related uh, as Dave was teaching through uh, chapter 6 and verse 14. Paul warned the Corinthians not to be unequally yoked. Uh, to go from pursuing lawlessness to pursuing righteousness, or from living in darkness to turning and to now live in the light. These are the type of examples of, of the extremes of what it means to repent. Repentance is a, a strong word. It's not just regret um, or remorse. Uh, oh, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I feel so bad that that happened. Paul's describing something far more powerful. Such a strong sense of, of wrongdoing that... I must not do it again. And not only must I not do it again, in fact, I need a complete course correction. We have to resolve this. And so Paul uses this phrase that he says they suffered no loss. Because Paul was concerned. We, we see in the text, if you read through this text on your own, uh, kind of from start to finish, you'll see that Paul expresses this sense that he was, he was grieved. He was concerned of what he had done. Not because it was wrong, but he, he knew how this could unfold. He knew how this may hurt them. But he says he can rejoice because they suffer no loss through him. He, he recognizes that, that the pain that was caused by his letter produced something far greater in value than the pain that they experienced. That, that this was so much more powerful for them to, to hear and to respond to in a positive way, to respond to in repentance that, that that what they received through that was far greater than a temporary moment of grief or sorrow. It's a, it's a significant point here, but I think that it may even go a little bit farther. Paul uses this phrase, suffer no loss. And then in 1 Corinthians 3.15, we see the phrase, will suffer loss. The root verb in both of those is to lose or to forfeit. And so I, I think Paul understood what was at stake here uh, with the Corinthians' response? And that's why their positive response bought him, brought him so much joy. Let's, let's look at this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3. And we're going to look at a few verses here briefly. Verse 10, Paul says this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. 
If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, as one escaping through the fire. Paul doesn't make this connection directly, but I I think it's fair to say that, that Paul may have had such an image in mind as he thought of the consequences of the possible outcomes from this time of conflict at the church at Corinth. He knew that they, wouldn't nece- they didn't necessarily have to repent, that they may receive this letter and, and it, it may cause grief uh, and sorrow. It turns to anger. Uh, it causes them to uh, a hardening of their hearts. He knew that this was possible. He knew that the loss that they could suffer could be very significant, not just uh, in that moment, of the pain and the grief that they experienced, but, but in an eternal way. And so it, it caused him great concern. It caused Paul sorrow as he, as he thought about what this may be. But then as he hears this good news, as he hears this response of the church, we begin to understand and see, I think, the reason for his joy. The reason he's, he's overflowing with joy. Because this was a significant moment. In the life of the Corinthian church, it was a significant moment in some of those individual believers. It was, it was significant both in the pain that they experienced as a result of their sin and the joy that they experienced as it produced repentance. This was big. Verse 9 really addresses a very specific issue, a, a, a moment in time. But Paul goes on in verse 10 and he kind of explains the general principle a little bit. So let's look at that. Verse 10, Paul says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now there's several phrases in here we need to look at that are interesting. The phrase godly grief uh, that we read in our English translations comes from a, a Greek phrase that would kind of be like a shorthand version of according to God's will, uh, which, which is interesting. He uses it there in both verse 9 and verse 10. And so as I was looking at this, as I was trying to understand it, I came across one commentator who cited several possibilities of the translation of this phrase. And it, it could read these several different ways. It could be pain born in God's way or sorrow that God uses or even sorrow that relates the sorrower to God. And then my favorite is grief that submits itself to God. In other words, pain or sorrow or affliction which is born out of God's will brings about or gives rise to genuine repentance. That God uses those moments in our life is that grief is submitted to God's will to bring about genuine repentance. Now, sometimes that grief or sorrow or affliction that we experience is, is directly related to sin in our life. Other times it's related to things that are well beyond our control. But either way, the way that uh, that that grief takes hold in our life, that God will use that and and does use that to bring about a a change in our life. Repentance could be specifically, usually often, it's it's referred to in the Bible as, as returning from sin. But in the broader idea of repenting, it could be turning from an action that God doesn't really want you here. He wants to move you over here. So God can use this according to his will any any way he desires. But there's two types of grief that Paul describes. There's godly grief and there's worldly grief. We'll get to that in just a moment. 
The next is you have an interesting phrase that, that Paul would write as he's writing to the Corinthian church, likely much or most of whom would be believers. We can at least assume to some degree, maybe not all of them. Paul maybe even was aware of people in the church who weren't, but many of those were people that he's, he's led to faith in Christ. But he says, uh, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So that phrase that leads to salvation causes some questions. Were the Corinthians not saved before this? Were they in danger of losing their salvation? Like, what does Paul really mean by this phrase? Can we, can we narrow that down? And I, I think there's, there's three things really that, that would apply here in this particular phrase. I think one, Paul very much so is saying that repentance is necessary for salvation, that we must turn from our sin and ourself and turn to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. I think that absolutely applies here. I think additionally that this speaks not only to our, our future eternity, but I think to the, to the here and now, not merely to uh, an eternal destination, but to um, an abundant life that we have that Jesus speaks of. It's, it's, it's not just the, the future, but it's, it's here. That, that repentance will bring about salvation, that will bring about uh, an abundance of, of life as we live it out. And then lastly, I think this applies even into the sense of the relief of pain or sorrow or grief that we have as a result of our experience, as a result of our sin. You, you know what it's like to, to, to feel grieved, to, to be upset, to be burdened by something, uh, whether it's uh, something that was out of your control or maybe something specifically you did. Probably more often than not, uh, the deepest sense of that feeling is when we've done something and we know that we shouldn't have done that. And that it eats at us. The, the Psalms talk about this a lot, how it, how it just, it, it, it tears our, our bones and uh, it causes us to be uh, uneasy and, and not at rest. But when we turn from that, when we turn from that sin, when we repent of that sin, the sense of relief that comes from that, when we confess that to Jesus and turn to him, it's like a weight that's lifted off of your chest. It's like a new life that you have all of a sudden. Not even in that salvation experience, but as believers, as you and I mess up, as we sin, as we make choices that don't honor God, and we bring that sin before God, and, and, and we're reminded of his great love for us and his mercy and his grace in our lives. I think all of these would uh, apply in this particular verse as Paul is writing to his friends. Then there's this last phrase here uh, in this first sentence is without regret, which makes this read uh, almost literally a repentance that need not be repented of. That this godly grief produced a fruit of repentance that need not be repented of. And I don't really know how else to explain that other than that's a fantastic thought that, that I turn from this. And turn to the Lord. And there's no change that needs to be made. I just need to keep pursuing that. I just need to keep pursuing Jesus. But there's nothing to regret. There's nothing to turn away from at that point. It's everything I've got towards the Lord. Now this is where Paul then begins to uh, show the differences between godly grief and worldly grief. Godly grief producing a repentance that leads to salvation. That leads to life. But worldly grief... Producing death. Worldly grief differs dramatically from godly grief. Godly grief submits itself 
to God's will. Grief that is submitted to God. Worldly grief is born out of selfishness. It's born out of self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-gratification, self-reliance, self-promotion, self-preservation. All of those self-things that, that often the world actually tells us are things that we need to, to pursue, that things that we need to, to build up as, as, as character traits within ourselves, things that, that are significant for us. But when worldly grief takes root in our lives, it takes root out of this selfish desire for these things. That we wanted or felt that we needed something or felt that we deserved something and we've been denied that. This is where worldly grief takes root. Or gets its root. That if only others could see or would see that that it would be different. If if I would have got this, it would have somehow made my life better and I would be here. And, and when we don't get those things that we want or we desire or we feel we somehow deserve, we begin to drown in self-pity. And we think, if only this would have happened, or it coulda, shoulda, woulda. And it takes root in our life, and we have nothing to do but, but to sit and to stew in this. And we begin to have all these different excuses. That this wasn't my fault, or this was their fault, or this should be mine, but I didn't get it. Or they've disrespected me in this way. They've dishonored me. By not uh, allowing me this position. Or this is, this is what I really want the most. And, and I see my friends over here, or maybe even people that aren't my friends, they have it. Why don't I have it? It's all about self. You name the excuse. And I, my guess is you could name the excuse. That you've had the excuse. I, I've had the excuse. Sometimes still have the excuse. And moments where, where I, Things have not worked out the way that I thought that they would or should. And within me, this, this concern, this, this sense of sorrow or pain wells up. Not because I'm pursuing God in that moment, but because I'm pursuing what's best for me. Paul says this, this type of grief leads to death. Paul decided to know nothing among the Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he's able to, to speak in such a profound way about what they've experienced. What they currently have went through versus what maybe they could have went through. He is able to speak into their life because he wants nothing except for them to know about Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no other motive. Paul had been wounded deeply by these people. Yet he loves them dearly. And so doing, he taught them the way of the cross, which led to this boldness and confidence to call them out when they weren't living according to the cross. And the response was to turn from their sin and to turn back to the cross, restoring their relationship with God and with Paul, this Man of Paul who's been given this ministry of reconciliation, which we've discussed in previous weeks. He now here is, is sharing with them how this has taken place and how he's seen this reconciliation, this 
restoration. Paul was able to do this because his life was so closely knit to theirs. It was so intertwined with theirs. We're, we're looking at a, a, a discipleship relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. It was a deep-rooted relationship. Paul wasn't posting on social media to or about people that he didn't know that well, calling them on their sin. Paul was writing a personal letter to dear friends who had who had deeply wounded him, but not to defend himself or not to condemn them, but for the sole purpose of bringing about reconciliation in their life that happens only when they focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. That he put, he put everything in that basket. That there was nothing else that needed to be done or conveyed. And now he sees that this teaching has taken root in their lives. He sees how they've responded because of the teaching of the cross. And he can rejoice. Now, let's go back to the question we asked at the beginning. Think about your relationships. Past, present, future. And take this principle to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, how does that affect your relationships immediately, today? If we put this principle and this principle alone into your marriage, how does that change the way you treat your wife or your husband? To know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you say, Joshua, you can't, you can't do that. There's a lot of other things that, that have to take place. There's a lot of responsibilities. There's a lot of things that we have to do. And there are. But how does Jesus Christ and him crucified, how do you filter everything else through that? How does that change the way you treat your husband or your wife today? What about work this week? If you go into your place of business, the place where you work, and you come in with, with this intent, this purpose, this motive, the people that you interact with, maybe the people that you employ or, or your supervisors, how does this change the way immediately that you act with them, that you interact with them? How does it change the way you parent? How does it change uh, the way that you deal with your children this week? When... Sure, you want them to listen and you want them to behave, but the way to get them there may not be the way that you've been pursuing. It's not certainly always that way in my life, in my parenting skills. But that what I want my children to know the most is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so that the way that I discipline them, the way that I love them, the way that I, I teach them is all to get them to this place so that, so that when... When they're grown and they leave the house, I can have complete confidence. Paul says in, in verse 16, the last verse of this chapter, he says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul's not exclaiming their perfection. He's not confident that they won't sin again. In fact, Paul knows very well that they will. But he's confident because he knows that when they, he knows that they do understand that when they do sin, that there's one remedy for that. When they go astray, there's one remedy. When there's conflict, personal conflict within relationships within the church, that there's one remedy. There's one thing that fixes it. When they've had a bad day and they're about ready to lose it on anybody and everybody, there's one remedy for that. Paul's confident that they know that. Not only do they know that, but they're willing to respond to that when they've stepped out of line. He knows that 
they know that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the only answer to their problems. That there's nothing else. He set out to know one thing among them, to teach one thing among them. And he now has clear evidence of the fruit of that teaching. That teaching has led to a transformation in their life that proved true when sin reared its ugly head. Paul addresses the circumstance. They recognize their sin, evidenced by godly grief, which produced a fruit of repentance that leads to salvation. Chances are you may be working through some type of grief in your own life. Maybe significant. Maybe it's enveloping everything. Maybe not so much. Maybe it's a smaller issue, but it's causing that unsettling within your spirit. If not, you will or have in the past. And What does that look like in your life? How does this text then affect that? Do you submit your grief to the will of God or do you allow that grief then to take root in your heart and to turn you away from God. Paul taught them the way of the cross and by submitting to the cross that even in our grief and our sorrow and pain, that God works in that according to his will and his ways to bring about repentance that produces the fruit in our life that was far greater than temporary sorrow and pain that the Corinthians could have felt. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how you've created this incredible way for us to be made right with you. That through the sacrifice of your own son, that through Jesus on the cross, that we could receive forgiveness of sins. But that he didn't stay in the grave that he 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 died but he rose again lord and then in all of this if we submit ourselves to you if we know nothing among anybody except jesus and him crucified lord that we can overcome anything that stands before us god may this message remain in our mind and in our hearts lord may you make this uh, in the front of all of our relationships a priority in all of our conversations and we enter into to every arena of our life knowing nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. Now we love you, and we know that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good week, guys.